everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. We have a very exciting show today. We would like to welcome back Teal Swan. Hey, Teal, how are you? Pretty good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, uh, really excited. This show, we are going to be focusing on and talking about your new book, The Completion Process. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we do that, I just also want to say congratulations on getting married. Thank you. So the pictures online, they look beautiful. <laughs> I love like the, it's the, the new age when everybody knows you're married and you're like, oh, yeah, I did post those publicly. Yep. <laughs> But congratulations. It's, it's, it's wonderful. So thank you. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this. There are a couple of things in this book. I have, um, some questions and definitely want to pick your brain on, but, uh, would you like to give our listeners just maybe a basic overview of how this book came to be and, uh, what it targets? And then maybe we'll get into some more of the questions and dig through it a little bit more. This book came to be as a result of the fact that I've been using this process, but in a less formal way with people for the last six or seven years, and I've been using it on myself even longer. And it never really occurred to me to turn it into a formalized process that people could use themselves until I was having a a business meeting in Florida. And this guy was like, you really need to just like make that into something that people can use in their everyday life. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's genius. I totally should do that. (laughs) But um, it began, I I should say that the process itself really began when I was 17. I was in the middle of all the torture that I was enduring. And basically, the abuser that had had me kept me in this hole in his backyard often it was really like the most tormenting time in the world because I never knew whether he would come back and kill me or whether he was going to let me go ever or what, what I was going to face. And it becomes such emotional torment that after a while you just kind of give up. It's like, I don't care. I'd almost rather this guy kill me than be in this situation. And I noticed that when I was inside of that hole, um, I would always have this like horrible tension of trying to get away from or change the way that I felt, which is this desperation. It's kind of like a vacuum internally. And this one day I just decided to commit emotional suicide. So I was like, you know what, instead of, instead of try to focus away from this feeling, I'm just going to like go into it almost like running straight into the tornado and just let it take me. Cause I can't resist this anymore. And when I did that, as opposed to being destroyed, I actually felt complete relief. It was almost like by doing that instantly, the content of the emotion changed. And that changed the way that I viewed emotion and dealt with emotion. And so that was the beginning of this process. It's now a a portion that I call um, emotional vipassana. Yeah, I, I read that in the book. And I think that this is so great because, you know, when I'm working with my clients too, I find that really no one is ever taught a process of how to deal with their feelings and emotions. Mm-hmm. feels like that people are either trying to stuff them or, like you said, run away from them. But no, nobody really knows or quite understands how to sit with them and be with yeah. them. Yeah, totally. Um, can you go into explaining a little bit? I'd like to talk about uh, the one chapter that you have of making the subconscious conscious. Mm-hmm. And can you take our listeners through the process of kind of what happens in the brain up to age eight? And, you know, what we're trying to do when we're doing this work in kind of bringing the subconscious to the conscious mind. Okay, so what we notice when we're watching children is that very early they begin to be socialized. 
And the process of socialization, even though it enables us to grow into these adults that can function in society, is that it teaches us that there are aspects of us that are acceptable and certain aspects of us that are unacceptable. So, I mean, it's, and this is just, I mean, every child is going to go through this type of a process. And of course, the, let's say, punishment techniques that people use to teach kids what's right or acceptable versus wrong and unacceptable vary greatly. And obviously, the intensity with which a child is disciplined, <clears throat> that tends to be the degree to which something is unavailable to the conscious mind. But basically, to survive here, you have one choice as a child, and that is to only become what is acceptable, to only become what the group around you, the social group around you, is willing to accept. So let's say that a kid gets really angry, but they're living in a social group where anger is not okay. Basically, anger is going to be met with discipline. And even if that discipline is in the form of disapproval, disapproval feels like a separation. And to a physical group species, which is what the human race is, that separation is going to threaten our deepest survival instincts. So a child has to disidentify with that anger. They have to find some way to say, you know what, I'm not going to be an angry person. I'm going to stuff this somewhere way, way deep down where I'm not even aware of the fact that that's in me anymore so that I can get the love that I want from the people around me. So likelihood is, is that this person is going to grow up and is going to be somebody who has absolutely no awareness that they have anger in them. They won't relate to themselves as an angry person. Maybe other people around them will be able to feel that inside them, but it's a, basically a dissociated aspect of self. So we all have these dissociated aspects of selves within us, primarily emotions, because emotions tend to be the thing which we make an enemy of in society the most. But another thing we have to understand is that when we experience trauma, if we can't assimilate that trauma into the narrative of our storyline, then we tend to suppress the entire memory as well. This is the main reason why people have whole gaps of memory in childhood. You talk to somebody and they'll say, I don't remember my childhood really. That's what's been going on. It's that those aspects of memory couldn't integrate with the story of who somebody was, and so they were completely suppressed. So a person as in an adult life, essentially, is a big division between conscious and subconscious. And this is what the psychologists like uh, Freud and Jung had discovered and were figuring out is that most of the process of psychotherapy, or we would say in the spiritual community, the process of reaching enlightenment is the process of making the, the unconscious or the repressed conscious. So, oh yeah, where are we going with the eight-year-old thing? I can't remember. Well, one of my questions where I'm kind of leading this to is, okay. in your book, you had um, stated that really, and, and I don't have it outlined exactly, but it was something to the effect that any trauma that we have experienced or when we're working with the subconscious mind is that it basically all develops oh, yeah, up yeah. to the age of eight and that okay. there's no trauma experience after eight. Yeah, okay, so this is, of course, this is one of those aspects of the book that people are going to be like, wait, what did you just say? Right. Um, okay, so this is how it works. Basically, we intended as spiritual beings to come down here and to be imprinted with what we would, I mean, on a very basic level, we could call it our basic wounds, the things that we will be working with, the things we will be transforming in our basic, quote-unquote, karma for the totality of our life. We accomplish this by coming in as feeling beings instead of thinking beings. So a, a child is experiencing primarily through felt perception until age eight. Age eight and on is the development of the mind. If we developed mind first, we could 
rationalize our way out of everything that we experience, but we cannot do that when we're children. We're basically being imprinted as children with these vibrations. So let's say you're born into a family that believes that money isn't, doesn't grow on trees. That's a vibration you're being imprinted with when you're young. If you experience a major trauma before age eight, you will not find a way to integrate that, especially given the typical parenting that happens today. And as a result, that will be the best way to think of it is like to think about a pond and you drop a stone in that pond and you start to see the ripples outwards. That starts to be the basis of your uh, law of attraction experience in life. So if before age eight, let's say mom or dad decides to leave on a trip, you find that really tormenting, but nobody really works you through those emotions and you can't rationalize your way out of them, that becomes an imprint. And then what we notice after age eight is lining up with abandonment experiences over and over again until that, let's say, uh, issue is resolved and worked through. So it's almost like you're being imprinted before age eight with the majority of your work and everything past age eight is a reflection. There is a possibility for some reflections to show up before age eight. But what's really interesting is that people will come to me as adults and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm really struggling with this issue that I have. Like I'm get, I got a divorce and this is the divorce itself that's causing this level of pain and it's why I can't get over anything. But in fact, in regression, we find that the divorce is nothing more than a reflection of a prior wound that happened previous to age eight. Now, do you ever have anybody that um, would like challenge that or say that there's, um, you know, a person that grew up in a quote unquote healthy, um, you know, (laughs) um, parenting situation that maybe their parents weren't divorced and all of a sudden they are going through a divorce and they can't necessarily locate something before age eight that could really be triggering it, but that it's just happening to them now. Oh, of course I've had people that are arguing that that kind of a state. I I think it's this is really a controversial process, I'm just going to be honest, because mm-hmm. not many people, I mean there haven't been many people who are in my position as a spiritual teacher teaching this kind of a process. A lot of people who deal with trauma resolution are in the psychology field and they don't really understand the way that spirit comes into body and the cycles that it goes through and why those cycles are as they are. But I've never, me, myself, working on somebody, I've never gotten stuck with somebody like that where there is no, no earlier trauma because of the dynamic of, of the mind and how the mind works. So like if something happened after age eight, like I said, you could work your way out of it. And it's not imprinted in the somatic memory like everything else is. Right. And you also um, gave a description in your book, which kind of leads into this about the difference between children being taken care of kind of physically with having all their needs met and emotionally. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So this is where I wanted to go. (laughs) Okay. So let's just be honest. Like in this field, I'm basically pushing everybody's buttons. And one of those buttons is that people really want to believe that their parents were wonderful. And when parents want to believe that they were wonderful and everybody does the best they can. And so it's really, really hard for people to hear that, wow, you know, my childhood could have anything to do with why my adulthood is the way that it is, especially if we had parents that were relatively okay. But from a perspective of somebody who, let's say, sees a lot more than meets the eye, I can tell you that the way that we parent, even the very best parents on the planet today are not capable of preventing the child from experiencing trauma. So, for example, we live in the emotional dark age. So even if you had a good parent 
that parent still most likely parented you emotionally in ways that were less than healthy. And they would have no conscious awareness that they were doing this. Of course, if a parent was like, oh, I'm parenting unhealthily, they would alter the course of the way that they parent. But most people just do what their parents did or do the best that they know how. So I have never met a single being walking the planet that has not encountered trauma. So here's an example of what I mean by that. Even if you had, by all means, the most fabulous parents in the world, let's pretend that when you came into this world, you had a hospital delivery. Hospital births are incredibly traumatic. They are not done the way that births should be done nowadays. And so even that can create imprints of trauma in a physical being. And so we're going to encounter trauma. Trauma, when we look at that word, it's really about any situation that causes us distress. When we get into a situation that causes us distress, we need to find resolution. And if that resolution is not available, the being goes into coping strategies, much like what we were describing before, pushing aspects into the subconscious, uh, dissociating, positive focusing, bypassing. There's a whole like host of, of coping mechanisms that we default to. So it's really important to understand when you start this kind of regression work to understand that even if you had, quote unquote, good parents, you're not exempt from experiencing distress on this planet. And so you're not exempt from the potential of being imprinted by that distress and then having that be a point of attraction in your adult life. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it also seems like what's the point of kind of coming in a spirit into earth if you're not going to experience trauma because it feels like through the trauma and the drama that's where the soul evolves and grows exactly which is why they, the buddhists have this statement no mud no lotus <laughs> <laughs> yeah i remember um reading something too from one of the buddhist monks um and he was talking about also finding a process and basically bringing the feelings very much of what you're saying to the conscious mind. And the example that he gave was, can you treat your feelings like a baby? You know, when, when there is a baby that is crying, what do you do with the baby? You know, hopefully you're not throwing it out the window. You're not, you know, smothering it with a pillow and saying, stop crying. But you know, most people would be trying to nurture the baby, trying to calm the baby and trying to calm them down and give love to it. So he was mm -hmm. kind of using that as an example as, you know, can we ourselves bring more love to the feelings and the emotions that we're feeling as opposed to just trying to, you know, stop them and, you know, not treat them kindly, but having that process like you're talking about. That's an amen moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, before we kind of get to that process of kind of being gentler with yourself and, you know, recognizing the feelings and being okay with them and going into them, there was another part of the book that I enjoyed reading and it was talking about the word drama and how sometimes we can label others as being very dramatic, overdramatic, um, and their reactions. And I thought that you did a really nice job of laying out how everyone's perception of what is happening you know, to them or to others is very different in that how we really need to move past that judgment of calling people dramatic or overdramatic. <laughs> okay, yeah. That's another hot button subject for me. Um, yeah, it really drives me nuts when we label emotional reactivity as drama because there really is no such thing as drama. Because perception really is reality and perception is colored by the filters of the trauma that you've experienced. It's why you have some people in your life who you think are so dramatic. You can, it's better to look at these people almost like they're really wounded. 
Um, I like to to compare really wounded people to burn victims, where if you even breathe sideways, it's going to hurt them. And so you have people who are like that on the emotional level. They've been wounded so badly that they're going to have those extreme reactions to everything. But if we were to step into their perspective, we would see that it's definitely not an overreaction at all. One of the examples that I gave actually came from directly my experience where I was working with a woman and a, a man in couples therapy. And they came in saying, oh my God, I just do not understand what the hell happened the other day because he, the, the husband ended up taking off his wedding ring and just placing it on their uh, countertop. She flipped out. I'm talking flipped out. So when he got back home, it was like pot, pot, like pots were being thrown at him and he was getting screamed at. And he's like, I don't know how to live with this woman. I cannot deal with the level of drama going on here. And when we, and at first she wouldn't open up, but when we finally cracked down into it, I took her into the emotion, actually put her through the completion process in front of her husband. And it turned out that when her father had left when he was younger, left her mom. She had come home to find his wedding ring on the counter. And that's how she found out that her dad was gone. Mm. And so once we saw that, we saw that that reaction was completely explainable. It would not only that, it didn't seem like much of an overreaction. She had spent the entire day in a different reality than he had, which is the number one thing to understand about what we're calling quote unquote drama is that we are often in a completely different reality than the other person who we think is being dramatic. So for example, the husband in that scenario is thinking, my gosh, like nothing's wrong. I took my wedding ring off because I was going to play a game of croquet. Like I didn't want it on my hand when I was doing that. And she's thinking, this guy has just left me and hasn't even told me why, you know. So if we look at those different realities, then obviously it's not an overreaction. And I feel like that's really important because as a society, we need to learn to meet emotions in a much different way than we do. We can't write them off. We can't bypass them. And it really does nothing but continue to teach people to suppress and to have a subconscious versus a conscious when we basically impose this idea that what they're feeling is not okay and is out of line. We, so basically the strategy that I want people in society to take, <clears throat> starting with those of us listening to this podcast is this attitude of no matter what, an emotion is always correct. It's an exact reflection of the reality we're experiencing. So regardless of whether that reality on a mental level is, is accurate objectively or inaccurate objectively, it's always a perfect reflection of our subconscious, not subconscious, our subjective reality. And that has to be honored, the fact that that is the reality somebody's experiencing right now. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty in the completion process that you take people through is that honoring of the feelings and the emotions. And some people might be more familiar with the term inner child work. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that this is, you know, the, the work that you're doing with the completion process is very similar to the inner child work? I, well, it's inevitable that when you do any kind of regression, you end up in childhood. And so you're, you're going to inevitably end up dealing with the inner child. So, yes, it's... It's a broader process that definitely involves the inner child. And I feel like inner child work is the cornerstone of trauma resolution because it's worked. For hundreds of years, it's worked. And so I would like to take what's working and whittle it down so that it doesn't include what isn't working. And there's a lot that isn't working about inner child work. It's ironic that this question is coming right after the last question because the number one mistake that we make with inner child work is that the minute that we... we 
let's say you start interacting with that inner child, or if the first thing we want to do is to rescue the, the inner child away from whatever we're experiencing. So the standard therapist would say, okay, go in there and can you see yourself as a little child in this circumstance that hurts? Okay, now the first thing you need to do is to pick this little child up and to figure out how to make everything better. And what we've missed is the most crucial step and the step that actually has us stuck and unresolved, which is that there is no validation to the emotions. Unless an emotion is validated, you can't actually move through it. It's stuck trying to be heard, desperately crying and screaming, kind of like a child does. So the very first thing that has to happen when you go in there, as opposed to just immediately resolving conflict for the child, is to say, you know what, the way that you're feeling right now is completely right to feel. I understand why you would feel this way. Anyone in your position would feel that way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then the other thing, too, with the inner child work, and then you are also speaking about in the book, uh, the human shadow work. And again, like you had said in the book, this is a little controversy, too, because some people will say, well, when you're doing shadow work, it brings more shadows out instead mm-hmm. of healing it. So um, I'd like you to explain that a little bit further as well. Okay. So. Yeah, I'm just going to say it. The law of attraction community has gone completely AWOL with this idea that the only thing that's acceptable is positive. So it's almost like we've taken the truth that your mind creates reality and that whatever you focus on, you get more of. We've swept it across the entire spectrum of life, and then we've taken it to such an extreme that now it's not okay to ever take a look at anything negative. And that is the opposite of awareness, by the way, the exact opposite of enlightenment. So it's, it's one of these traps that people fall into. Obviously thinking about that, it would be, let's say common to think that if you are focusing on anything negative, including something that you've suppressed in the subconscious mind, you will get more of that thing. But here's the thing about the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind can think 10 negative thoughts in the process of time, it would take you to think one conscious thought. If you're consciously aware that you're thinking a thought, it's because it takes effort to think because you don't have neural pathways set up to think that thought yet. It's why you don't have to think about how you're getting home. Most of us are on autopilot. I mean, how many times have you experienced that that syndrome where you know you have to go somewhere else, but you're not thinking, and so you just follow the route you normally take home? That happens because the brain is designed to recognize patterns. And so if you think negatively, your mind will take it over and it becomes a subconscious process. So when we're working with shadow work or the subconscious mind, we're working with stuff that's already being focused on. And when you become conscious of it, an interesting thing happens. There is a difference between thinking a negative thought and watching yourself think a negative thought. In one, you're in the vibration of that negative thought. In the other, you are literally disidentified. And so the point of attraction is to that aspect of the observer self. So you've, in essence, by becoming aware, which is all shadow work is, by becoming aware of these aspects of self that we could call quote-unquote negative if we want to, we are stopping the momentum of the law of attraction responding to those negative thoughts. And I also like to give the analogy of walking into a dark room. If you take a flashlight, which is a light of consciousness, into a dark room, the room doesn't get darker it becomes light. And that's how consciousness introduced into the subconscious works. Now, have you ever found that people who are doing this work intensely, um, and maybe they're saying, okay, you know, Teal, take me through zero to eight. I want to work out every, everything in my life possibly so I can live in the conscious mind. I mean, do you feel that 
that really is possible to work it all out and then maybe you're living a life where you're really not being triggered or that you're understanding all of your triggers um, perfectly and that you're not having any type of really strong emotional reactions, maybe feeling just more peace and ease? Yeah. Yes, it's been my experience that that's the ultimate result of going through this process. Even me in my own life, my triggers have diminished and diminished and diminished and diminished to the degree where I'm only really struggling with my core issues. Because it works kind of like layers of the onions. You start with the ones that are the periphery and then the things that are buried the deepest, the deepest, most unresolved wounds that really kicked it all off are the ones you start getting into later in the process. And those are a real struggle, I'll tell you what. But what's real fun to watch is the fact that those start to be the only issues you have. And everything else is just peripheral and you don't really have that reaction anymore, which is just so great. You know? It's so much better not to feel that instant hit of reactivity and to also be able to just stop and make rational decisions, which is wonderful. So, yeah, I think it's possible for somebody to completely do that clearing work, but... I've also noticed that when people approach this process from that angle, they inevitably will run into a point where the process isn't working for them. Mm -hmm. I love this process. Most people get into a, a real, let's say, existential crisis when that starts to happen. And they're like, I'm just stuck. I can't get past this. I just can't get past it. What that is, is the inner child who always felt like there was something wrong with it. And by doing this work, you run into that little child who's basically saying, no, if you're going to continue to try to heal me from this attitude that there's something wrong about me, there's no way in hell I'm going to get better. Screw you. Like, I'm going to sit here as long as it takes for you to accept that this is who I am. And so I, I and this always happens, by the way, with people who are into the self-help industry. If anybody's into self-help, they've got this aspect that I call the internal moderator. So basically getting disapproval from mom and dad was so painful that I took over and created an internal moderator that tries to correct me and tries to make me better so that somebody else doesn't have to do it. And that's a self, it's innately a self-abusive relationship with the self. And so if anybody is approaching it from that angle, they will run into this particular inner child. And it's just like, it's such good news because that's the ultimate breakthrough to self-acceptance, but it's a real frustrating part of the process. <laughs> mm, yeah. Now, um, when you talked about kind of like how you've moved through your triggers and now you're dealing with just mainly the core issues mm -hmm. or the core work, is core work different than inner child work? No, no, it's the same. It's just that it, it's, it, well, basically the, the feeling content changes when you start to hit these genuine cores. It's like the, you're hitting the root of all roots and it starts to feel like I can't get through this one. Like this one could kill me. It's that sort of a feeling. You start to realize why the conscious mind has suppressed it so incredibly deeply into the subconscious. Cause it, those core issues tend to undo everything and tend to explain exactly why your life has taken the course that it's taken. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, you'll start to feel like I've really done it this time. Like this is the really, really the one, you know, I, it's difficult to explain to somebody who hasn't really gone into it, but it's like without fail, you will know that that is really the bottom of the pit because of how incredibly painful everything else is. And it takes longer to resolve because there are so many triggers around it. And it tends to be the one that, that has re-traumatization associated with it. For example, Let's say uh, my deepest core issue is actually loneliness and isolation, the sense of not belonging. And that was what kicked everything off in my life and started with my parents. 
And then the reflection of that happened with me being inducted into a cult. Obviously, nobody goes into cults if they belong in their families. So, um, so, so like it was basically the realization that that caused everything else in my life that was super, super damaging. But also what you watch over the course of my life is that that continues to repeat. And when it repeats with no resolution, we call that re-traumatization. So it's trying to find a family and then having it fail a second time is a re-traumatization, for example. So for somebody like me with, the, you know, with that core, it's just, it seems like you're trying to get through a fishing knot that would just be better to be cut through instead of undone because of just how much trauma is involved with that core vibration. But that is the core of what I'm working through in this lifetime. So that's how it works with people when you find your core traumas. Gotcha. Now, I know you and I are familiar with kind of the trauma jargon and the talks and stuff like that, um, but I just want to have you identify for people what the word trigger means. I, I, I automatically assume that people know what that word means, but I, I don't want to assume that. Um, so can you describe, and maybe we can um, start here where you can identify and explain what a trigger is, and mm -hmm. then maybe can we begin to kind of have you go through how the completion process works once you find that trigger in a person. Okay. Keep me on track if I get sidetracked. Cause that's okay. just like, you, you we're on my favorite subject in the world and I tend to get very talky. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So a trigger, how do I describe a trigger? Super, super simply. Basically a trigger is you experiencing something that brings back a previous unresolved experience and you will experience that unresolved trauma coming back as a peak or as a flare in an emotional reactivity. So I think we can understand a trigger the best when I explain a circumstance. Let's say that you've got a woman who is not really aware of the fact that she was maybe raped when she was little because that's that memory has become a subconscious memory. When we go through trauma, trauma is stored in the brain in a fragmented way. That's one of the ways that the brain deals with trauma. And so the sight aspect of memory will be stored separately from the sound aspect of memory will be stored separately from the emotional aspect of memory. And they don't tend to come back all at once. And so we call it a trigger anytime somebody's getting a flashback. That's the visual aspect of memory coming back. But with re reference to this process and what most people mean, especially in the spiritual and self-help community when they're talking about a trigger, is the emotional aspect of memory coming back, but without anything else. So there's no context for it. So for example, little girl gets raped when she's four, let's say. And when she's an older woman, she's 30, she's walking through the store and she's in the deodorant aisle. Let's say she passes by the deodorant that this man who raped her was wearing that day. And that smell triggers the aspect of memory that is emotional. Suddenly she's going to start feeling those same sensations of terror that she felt when she was four years old in that circumstance. Because her mind is telling her we're in danger. This smell is linked to danger. This is trouble for me. So she's going to start having an anxiety attack in the store and have no idea why the hell it's happening. She's going to think she's going crazy. She's been triggered. It means that this, this past unresolved trauma is coming back, but is coming back in a way that we don't have conscious awareness of. So what she's feeling is the intensity of that emotional experience. And we, have, we would call that a major trigger. We have minor triggers all the time. So let's say that you've got like low self-esteem. If somebody says something that you perceive as a, an insult, 
that's going to trigger your sense of low self-esteem and you're going to become reactive to that. You're going to feel that intensity of emotion. That's a trigger. So trigger, just like trauma, is a spectrum. We've got small triggers and big triggers. So where are we going from there? How this relates to the process? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for probably the last thousand years, when we've been dealing with post-traumatic stress, we have taken the approach to triggers that they need to be calmed down. So let's say we're dealing with a, a vet who comes back from war, who's got lots of triggers. They're the kind of person who's going to be hearing the fireworks go off and they're going to dive underneath the table because their body's telling them, I'm in danger, I'm going to get shot. So what we try to do is to diminish the trigger. We try to make it so they don't get triggered. This is the opposite approach that we need to take if we want to actually heal. So the first portion of this process involves using triggers. So when you get that intense emotional reactivity, what you do is you go into it. You don't try to make yourself feel better. So I had to have people say, sit down and instantly after they close their eyes, they're going to sit and be completely present with the emotional reaction that's happening in their body on a sensation basis. So like an emotion, we could say I'm feeling sad, but that doesn't really make any sense. That's abstract. What does sadness feel like in the body? Does it feel somatically like a sinking? Does it feel like heaviness? What does that sadness feel like on a somatic level? And so we sit with that. And usually when you, when you introduce conscious presence, which is your own attention to the internal experience, either you see a calming of the experience or an intensification of the experience. It doesn't matter either way. The point is is that you're learning to be unconditionally present with that emotion and then to validate it. That's the next step. So the validation of the emotion is, okay, I'm completely here with this sensation now. I'm willing to feel this feeling. And what we notice there, and this is what what I've basically discovered, is that because what we're getting with a strong trigger is the emotional content of memory, we can actually use that as a rope that links us back to the unresolved event that is usually subconscious. So after we've sat in that and become comfortable with it, and we see this relief pattern happen... Then we ask ourselves the question, when was the very first time I felt this feeling? And you're not going to go mentally figure it out. You want to let it come up. So you're almost, I mean, the best way to think of it is like that, that strong emotion, that trigger is like a big rope that you've grabbed onto. And when you ask that question, it's kind of like you're fumbling through the dark, but with that rope back to what it's attached to, which is the root of that trigger. And that's where we start to do the resolution work. So most of the time... Memory happens in a, in a kind of fragmented way. So to begin with, you don't get much, but it keeps filling back in. So you'll experience yourself maybe when you follow that route back and you ask that question, you start to have this feeling like you're in a crib. And so we're dealing with a crib memory. So we just we become totally aware of that memory. It usually filters back quite quickly because the reality is, is that people want to become whole. I mean, your being wants you to become whole and to find these fragmented aspects of dissociated self again. So it's really on your side. And what I love so much about this process, and it's why I call it an emotional rebirth process, is that it does itself. So I'm, I'm almost making steps of something that happens naturally if you were to not interfere with the process. But people, basically at this point in the process, they begin to relive the memory. And this is where I'm going to get the most heat, if you will, from 
the psychology community because the psychology community is really divided between people who believe in re-experiencing and people who do not. My experience, having overcome 13 years of ritual trauma, is that re-experiencing is absolutely necessary, that you will not be able to heal unless you're willing to re-experience because it undoes dissociation. Now, I'm about to boldly claim in the world that dissociation is what causes post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and it's not the other way around, which is what we've been saying, which is a symptom of PTSD is dissociation. So if dissociation, which is I'm not going to experience this in this moment, is the mechanism for post-traumatic stress, the way to undo post-traumatic stress, i.e. triggers, is to consciously and intentionally re-experience something. So after we go through the re-experiencing process, we gain full awareness as to why we're being triggered in the present moment to the degree that we are. Then we can shift into a resolution phase. The resolution phase begins with validating that feeling, but within the context of the memory. So, um, yeah, we can do that. I like to do that in, in, one, in the way where we're doing it in first person so that even the child in the crib is saying from the inside, almost like a soul speaking to the child, I'm right to feel this way. Then we separate into an a visualization. So this is where our active memory becomes a visualization instead, and we begin to find resolution within the context of that memory. So I'll have the, the self split into the child self and the adult self, and the adult self then validates the child and finds resolution to the situation that's going on. And that starts to play the CD forward. This is what I mean by that. Trauma creates a kind of a pause. So most of us who, who were around CDs, I'm sorry, those of you who are too young for that, but when we, when we saw CDs, what we see is them skip, right? There is a point in the song, if there's a, a scratch that's made on that CD where it just starts going, it, 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 and it won't play forward. This is what trauma is like within the emotional body. So when we start to find resolution within the context of this memory turned visualization, that CD starts to play forward again, and it starts to catch up with our future self. And we have, we've, because we've created resolution, the law of attraction is now responding to the resolution as opposed to the vibration we were stuck in. So if we were stuck in isolation and we find resolution within the context of that memory, the law of attraction is now responding to, say, uh, accompaniment, which is the resolution that we found in that memory. And so it has, this process has the capacity to dramatically change the way that law of attraction is responding to us. And it's what I like to warn people about before they start this process, because it will fix your life, but it will fix it so fast that life has to change immediately. So <laughs> it's sort of like strap on your laces type of moment. So do you want me to, did you want me to continue throughout the whole rest of the process? Potentially, or? Yeah, because I'm also curious too. I mean, you're kind of up to the point too, where you, you know, when you're working with the person, you want to await the relief in step nine. Yeah. And where, you know, there's a point there too, where you wait to see if the child wants to come back or wants to stay there. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> so what I really think is important is that we as adults love to impose what the inner child really needs on the inner child. But the aspect of you that's stuck is this aspect of you that is, is like a child self. It's stuck in a phase of development. And so we need to really consider what the child itself needs, which might surprise us. So we turn it at this point over to the child and say, what is it that you need from me or would like in order to make this situation feel different or change or be better? 
And we do that for the child. So if the child needed to be defended, we defend the child and let the child watch us do that. I mean, it could be against mom or dad or whoever, whatever's going on in this circumstance. It's really impossible for me to say like all of the potentials that you might run into in terms of making a situation better because it's so unique to whatever experience or trauma the person themselves had been going through at that particular time. So for example, let's say I, I had a client who <clears throat> was traumatized when he was eight because his sister went off to college and nobody explained it to him, just thought that, you know, because from an adult perspective, it's just college. What's the big deal, right? But from an eight-year-old perspective, being so attached to his sister, it was like, I just lost this person and nobody is acting like anything went wrong. So that created this this major rift. And what this child self wanted was to be made a little world where he could live in the sister's dorm with her. And so we did that within the context of the memory. It's crazy the amount of relief you can create by doing that. Another alternative, which is why I have people set up this safe space mentally to begin with, is because if we've had childhoods which felt primarily unsafe, we usually need an entire other construct with which to create the sensation of safety. And so I have people create this this fantasy reality in their mind for these inner children to to be able to go to called the safe space. This also creates distance between the memory that was experienced and this new place which represents safety. And of course, these safe spaces are completely unique. Some people have them on other worlds. Some people go into fantasy landscapes. Some people have it in a meadow. I mean, it's totally up to whatever safety looks like to the person. But at this point, you can offer to the child, do you want to stay here in this resolved memory or would you like to come into the safe space? If they come into the safe space, you mentally take them there. And then um, I have several steps which create distance from the memory, which enables that stuck aspect of self to reintegrate further and further with the present self. So the first one is popping the memory, where basically you deactivate that memory. <clears throat> Usually this takes place in the form of a child being able to pop it like a, a pin in a balloon. <clears throat> So that creates that sensation of separation, like, okay, there, there's that thing is done. There's been resolution. I can close the chapter kind of energy. Then another one is purification. So somewhere in that safe place, we'll have water where that child self can go into the water and then feel the sort of purification and know that kind of like baptism works, there is a before this experience kind of life and after this experience kind of life. So that yet again creates more distance from that tra traumatic memory. And then you meet the child's needs within the context of the safe space even. So let's say that you've got a child who's like, oh, I want mashed potatoes. You get the mashed potatoes. Or I want the experience of having a different mother. Then you get them a different mother. You're just meeting those needs in whatever way you want to. And after a while, and it's really good for, to let people, or if you're doing this process yourself, experience that last step because this is what we call anchoring. Somatic anchoring is when you ex really, really experience the resolution. So if let's say we came out of that isolation memory, if we are now giving this child all the company that the child could possibly want in the form of friends and parents and people that are close to him that he's never going to lose, we want the child self or let's say the adult self experiencing through this visualization to feel that feeling of having company. And when that gets anchored into the tissues of the body, your entire point of attraction changes and we call that resolution anchored. So we want that experience. And then from there, you can give the child the, the choice to stay in that safety 
or else to fully reintegrate with the self. And when that happens, it's pretty cool. It's like the child starts to merge with your, your current self who's experiencing this process and will grow up inside you. It's almost like you're fusing with a, a ghosty kind of an aspect of a child that then grows up inside you to rejoin you and is you. So it's such a great feeling when that happens. Great. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, now, one of the questions that I had, and you kind of answered it earlier, where you said that really there's this part of ourselves that does want to heal, that wants to reintegrate. But have you ever ran into anyone whose memory, like you were talking about earlier, when we suppress the memory, really was blocked and they cannot access any memory of their childhood? Uh, how do you work through that to kind of get them to the point, or like you said earlier, it naturally will begin to unfold. There will be a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, but, um, have you ever run into people just saying, I, I just cannot access anything? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've run into a lot of people like that. In fact, and, and what, yeah, I, what my, do you do from there? My approach is to try So basically is to step back even farther and see that, that the, like, where does the desperation to, to deal with this come from? Because usually that's where the block is. So that's all, you know, one way that I discovered about this aspect where there's a there's a, an aspect of ourselves that doesn't want to continue to hear you have to heal yourself. Because when we are approaching ourselves from that angle, we're basically saying something is wrong with us. Obviously, you don't have to heal something if something's right. And so usually a block like that will happen at that level. And so we have to deal with that first before the subconscious is willing to offer up anything in the form of resolution. And so we'll be working from that angle. Other options also are that we've just become so good at, at convincing ourselves that we are only what's acceptable, that the subconscious mind is just a lot more uh, walled and armored. And when that's the case, we have to have a lot more patience with getting back the tiny details that we get, which is still okay. Because, I mean, I like to say that if, even if what you're doing is being totally present with the way you feel, it's enough. That's enough to begin this process and have it be enough, actually, where you're just, you know what, when I feel this feeling, I'm completely with myself right now. Even that is such a profoundly healing change to make that, I mean, if somebody could only get there, I would be like, hell yes, then your life's going to look way better than it does today. <laughs> but another thing that I've noticed also is that if we have had enough education in our childhood against feeling emotion, the likelihood is, is that we have trauma involving not being allowed to feel emotion in and of itself. So this is like a, a secondary layer of ice that I say sits over the process, preventing you from getting to the water underneath. So let's say that when you were younger, you felt anger. If you got punished for the anger, feeling the anger itself, and in the future, if you get one of the triggers and it's anger, you're not going to be able to go into the anger because you've got the trauma that is involving going into the emotion itself. But what changes is that instead of asking ourselves the question, when did I first feel this feeling? The question you're asking yourself is, when was the first time I, I learned that feeling this feeling was not okay? Mm. And so when you go back into that memory, you can resolve that and then you have great access to resolving the traumas that are linked to what I call genuine emotion, as opposed to a trigger involving emotion, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, if people are interested in becoming a completion process certified practitioner, mm -hmm. um, are you the one that's actually doing the training or yes. how's that working? Okay. Can At you talk point, a little bit about that? At this point, I'm too controlling. No, um, <laughs> I am the person that trains people now. I really, I'm like, 
I think I'm going to train people in the future to teach this. But the reality is that I've got such an intense level of investment in this process itself and in the way that it needs to be done and in the specific personality types that I want working with other people that I've taken control of this process. But I train about 22 people every – I say – I think we're doing a training every three to six months and I want to take these trainings all over the world, too. So what people do is we've got the completionprocess.com, and that's where to go if you want to learn about this process. But I, I will, there will always be an advertisement for the next opening for practitioners that I have. And I personally sit down and go through sometimes hundreds and hundreds of these applications and hand-select the people that I want to have working with this process. So that would be – if you're interested in becoming a practitioner, that would be the process to follow. Okay. And are you finding that this is, um, this, I know that you've done so many, um, speaking engagements and, you know, some of the other books that you have written, but are you finding that this is the road that your work is now taking? Yeah, it's where my interest really lies. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of dabbling in everything, but when you're talking to me about my passion, this really is my passion and it's everything. And I was, I've said, like, I was really excited because sometimes as an author in this field, when you write books, the books get dissected and it's sort of like, okay, now this is a product to promote myself, but I'm not super attached to it. This is the first time I think I've created something that I'm like superbly attached to because of just the amount that I, I feel connected to this work. I feel like regression work, even though it's a controversial methodology, is really where healing is going to be for the planet itself. It's what enabled me to not have dissociative seizures every day. It's why I'm capable of having a relationship after 13 years of ritual torture is because of this work. And so being able to see it transform my own life and transform the life of the people I've been working with for so long, I've created this grander mission, basically, where the planet becomes conscious and is capable of dealing with emotions in a different way. And it's like I'm so dedicated to that vision that I could do this from sunup to sundown and never get bored. <laughs> <laughs> well, then there you go. Then you know you're on the right track, right? <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We really love the work that you're doing in the world. Um, I really enjoyed reading this book just as a clinician myself, and uh, I definitely will take a look into what it might take to be one of these uh, certified practitioners. So Yay. thank you so much, Teal, for joining us again, and we hope to have you back in the future. We always enjoy the interviews with you and uh, you know, hearing about the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.